Welcome everyone to the Refresh Podcast, brought to you by our team at Ola Coral. We are bringing you digestible, informative, and actionable content via entrepreneurs like us, scientists, and advocates alike. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Let's get started. On today's podcast, we are welcomed by Philip Karp and my co-host Anthony Lewis. Philip is an independent citizen scientist and an ocean advocate, focusing on market-based approaches to conservation and interface between conservation and livelihoods. Philip gives his unique perspective on how to combat invasive lionfish species, so without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so Phil, thanks for joining us today. We're really happy to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, Anthony has mentioned you so much over the past few months that we've been working on this project and this is my first time meeting you. So I was just curious if you could give a little bit of a background of what you do. Sure. So, um, I actually, uh, recently retired from the world bank where I was a, a knowledge management and learning specialist. But I've had a lifelong um, love for our ocean and have been involved in uh, marine conservation uh, and ocean advocacy as a citizen scientist um, for about the, the last uh, 10 years. So, can, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about, a, did you say citizen scientist? What exactly is that and what, what exactly is your role in that position? Yeah. Uh, so... Citizen science is a, a term that uh, sort of has emerged uh, in the last um, decade or so, but it actually goes back to the period of time um, where uh, you didn't have that many people who actually were full-time professional scientists. Charles Darwin, for example, was not trained as a scientist. Uh, he was... Uh, you know, brought a, went along on a uh, on a on a sea journey, um, and basically made observations. And uh, the Royal um, Geographical Society, many of the members were um, prominent, um, you know, businessmen, uh, as opposed to professionally trained scientists. So today, citizen science really refers to. Um, you know, people who have an interest in uh, a particular area, mainly in the natural sciences, and uh, who get involved uh, often in support of um, um, projects or research that's being led by professional scientists, uh, often as a way of providing additional uh, labor or being able to crowdsource information. So in my case, um, you know, my involvement is less in uh, research projects that are organized by others, but more having followed uh, some particular issues uh, around um, um, coral reef ecosystem conservation and, uh, you know, getting deeply involved in those both in terms of uh, some research, but also advocacy. Yeah, honestly, in the time that I've known you, Phil, like, I'm like, oh, I don't have the answer to something to do with lion fish, or I don't have the answer to something to coral. Like, I feel like whenever I ask you, it always seems like you either have an answer for it or know someone who has an answer. 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I like to uh, to um, to think that within the, the very narrow area of um, you know the lionfish invasion and associated both biology and ecology, um, I probably you know probably know as much as say an average marine scientist who doesn't study lionfish. Um, I probably don't know as much as a professional scientist who's doing his or her research primarily on lionfish. And I think you find that uh, as a characteristic of citizen scientists within the areas that they're involved in, they actually uh, know quite a lot um, and you know, like to follow both the sort of the general literature, but also to keep up with the scientific literature. That's interesting because you're, you're obviously well-versed in what you're studying, but does that, being a citizen scientist, does that hurt credibility in the science realm or have you had to, have you had to navigate any issues with that? So, I mean, it, um, it, it's interesting. Um, there are professional scientists who face an uphill battle at times in incorporating research that involves citizen scientists. So there's, you know, when they're doing, um, uh, looking to publish, sometimes there's a skepticism on the part of peer reviewers or, um, you know, academic advisors as to whether um, research that's gathered or, or uh, pulled together by citizen scientists is equally valid. But there have been quite a number of studies that have actually looked at um, research that's generated from various citizen science methods with that done entirely by professional scientists and have found that, you know, they're sort of, you know, equally valuable, particularly if um, the, the methodologies are well-defined and the citizen scientists involved, um, you know, are either provided with clear guidelines or training. Okay. That's, yeah, that's really interesting to hear that it's, I, I know you mentioned Charles Darwin, you see him as such a, such an impact on the science community and he has, he was in that same role. So that's really cool to hear that people are actively doing that. And you, you kind of foreshadowed this a little bit, but what exactly are you researching uh, in, in your role as a citizen scientist? Yeah, so I mean, the area I'm involved in uh, more on advocacy side than research is looking at um, market-based approaches to dealing with uh, in invasion of, um, uh, of lionfish that are native to the Indo-Pacific, but have invaded the Western Atlantic. And by the Western Atlantic, I mean the Gulf of Mexico um, the Caribbean and the um, uh, the eastern seaboard of the United States, and more recently have also invaded the Mediterranean. Wow! So, can you can you talk a little bit more about the market-based solutions that you've you've found or have looked into for lionfish? Yeah, but before, before I, I talk about the market-based solutions, let me give a, just a, a quick synopsis about the invasions and why market-based approaches um, are being looked at. So, you know, these, um, these lionfish, two species of lionfish that are native to the Indo-Pacific, 
have invaded the Western Atlantic, and one of these same species has invaded the Mediterranean. Um, you know, not all alien um, species are invasive, but in the case of lionfish, they are very much so in the sense that um, they disrupt native um, ecosystems and food webs. Uh, in the case of lionfish, they can reduce the populations of uh, juvenile fish on a, on a, on a uh, you know, a particular coral head by up to 80% in a matter of weeks. Um, they reproduce rapidly and have colonized really the entire um, Caribbean, uh, Gulf of Mexico, uh, are found as far north as Rhode Island in the summer months in the U.S. and as far north as the Carolinas year-round. Um, fortunately, the studies have, have shown that if the populations are reduced by around 80%, then uh, native fish populations begin to recover rapidly. But that reduction requires regular removals. And, uh, you know, initially those removals were being done by organizing um, uh, recreational divers through derbies or competitions to go out and basically, you know, spear lionfish. And that's, that's cool, um, but it is not really sustainable over the long term to rely entirely on volunteers. At the same time, you had um, marine protection agencies going out and, and culling lionfish. But again, that's expensive, it's labor intensive because they can't be removed using conventional fishing gear, such as nets or lines. They have to be hand speared or hand netted. So the challenge is how do you um, find a financially sustainable way to incentivize those removals? And this is where the market solutions comes in. You want to actually create a, a market incentive for people to go out and, and, and catch lionfish. Um, the most well-known of the market solutions is a vertical market from fishermen to seafood sellers to restaurants. And there has been a big push um, to encourage people to, um, you know, to eat lionfish. Um, there's a bunch of restaurants that serve it. There have been campaigns called Eat em to Beat em or Be the Predator. And a big push around that in 2016 was the um, decision by uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium's um, Seafood Watch, which is the you know best known of sort of the seafood certification bodies in the U.S., to classify lionfish as a best choice, and what that did is it gave an impetus to supermarkets like Whole Foods and Publix and others to begin to um, you know have lionfish in their stores, and also to chefs to begin to serve lionfish. So that's the best known market-based solution. But the one that I've been involved in um, and actually helped to establish is using um, parts of the lionfish that are previously discarded by fishermen, which are the fins and the spines to make jewelry and handicrafts. 
Um, the initial sort of impetus for this was the reaction by fishermen who were being encouraged to, you know, capture lionfish for seafood. They basically saying, look, lionfish are small compared to other fish that we spear, like snapper and grouper. They're smaller and they don't really afford a higher price. Um, plus, there's a risk of getting stung or evenomated by the venomous spines of the lionfish and losing fishing days. So I was thinking, you know, how could you increase the landed value per fish in a way that would incentivize um, fishermen to go after them? And the idea of using the fins and spines to make jewelry and having, you know, the, the artists buy the fins and spines from the fishermen sort of was the initial impetus. Yeah, I remember when I went to Belize, it was like my first experience seeing lionfish, but then also seeing the jewelry there. And it's kind of crazy because you don't really see, like the only jewelry that I equated to is like a shark tooth, right? They used to have those shark tooth necklaces that were super popular for a long time. And then seeing this jewelry made from lionfish really made me think about the trend and happen of those and the popular they had. And like lionfish jewelry definitely is beautiful and like really cool opportunity that like you helped create too, Phil, especially since we're trying to take a part in it now too. But I'm also curious, um, I know the answer to this, but I'm sure people would like to hear about it. What made you interested in the lionfish invasion? And like, how did you hear about it? I actually heard about it. Um, I, had, I, had, I had read a few articles about it, um, but then I, um, you know, I volunteered um, um, at a, a NGO called Reef CI, um, which basically operates a, a volunteerism uh, program in uh, Belize. Volunteerism is actually a, a little bit of a, of a related to citizen science, although um, the, you know, the people that go aren't always necessarily interested in the science, but often in the conservation or in sort of a, you know, having a, a, a different type of a holiday. And what Reef CI does is they um, have a number of um, programs related to marine ecosystem and particularly coral reef conservation. One of them is lionfish. So before going, you know, down there the first time in 2014, um, I did a little bit of research about lionfish and then learned more while I was there and was sort of one day when we were um, dissecting lionfish and, you know, you had this uh, um, cutting board or um, um, uh, cleaning board that was covered with, you know, fish guts and uh, semi-digested prey and the lionfish carcasses. And I was sitting there saying, you know, what could you do with these things? And somehow the um, vision of the jewelry that um, Native American um, uh, women make from porcupine quills sort of popped in my head and the spines looked like quills and the, the fins looked like butterfly wings. So, um, you know, I dried some fins and spines and um, took them back to a small town in uh, Belize and uh, showed them to an artist and said, you know, what do you think you could do anything with these? And she said, yeah, let's give it a go. And that sort of became the impetus for um, development of the market. 
That's so funny because, I mean, I went to ReCI in 2016, so it's like two years apart. <laughs> um, and even in that two years, like, you just saw there was so many other people now selling lionfish jewelry, too. Yeah, so it's uh, one of the things that's been interesting um, in terms of the, um, the cycle of sort of product development and innovation. Um, you know, this is a case where... Um, Initially, um, you know, I actually made use of the internet to get some pictures of porcupine quill jewelry that I showed to the artists to give them some initial ideas. And then as they produced um, different designs, you know, I shared those through social media so that artists in other countries um, saw this and said, hey, you know, I'll try it out. So the, um, the diffusion of both the idea, but also the designs has taken place somewhat organically, but I think it's been definitely accelerated by um, social media. Uh, I, I imagine that that's happening with other products as well. But in this particular case, that would actually be an interesting uh, piece of research for someone to do to see how um, this um, idea and this product has has grown so quickly, um, you know, and spread around the uh, around the world. Yeah, I mean, and that that's how we came up with our idea for the, the jewelry we're making with the bracelets is from stuff we saw on social media and trying to innovate on it and try to create uh, a more simplistic design that's for any gender to wear. So it's kind of funny that you mentioned how like social media is spreading it because that's where our idea kind of came from and from the experience we had in Belize. Yeah, and it's been, you know, it's. <clears throat> A lot of the innovation has actually come from different artists, and you know my role has more been to to then help to to share that and also to um, do a little bit of investigation myself so early on, um, I um, went and talked to a couple of taxidermists to get their advice on you know the best way to preserve um, you know fish parts um, and I also um, tested out with some jewelry artists who were doing porcupine quill jewelry. So I sent them spines and said, look, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think you could do with it? So not only the artists in, uh, in Belize and in the Caribbean, but also tested things out with some, you know, artists in the U.S. And the way I went about identifying them was um, I looked on Etsy, which is a well-known um, you know, online platform for, um, for arts and handicrafts. And I found artists that were doing porcupine quill jewelry and reached out to them about using the lionfish spines. That's, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm curious if you've run into this issue with making or having the idea of making jewelry out of such a beautiful fish we've had many people where we've talked about our project to, and they say that they're, they're kind of upset that people are killing the lionfish or get, getting rid of them, even though they are such a terrible invasion within the ocean. So I'm curious, have you, have you ran into that issue where people get upset with what you're doing? Absolutely. So um, particularly with people who aren't aware of the fact that they are invasive, you know, in the Caribbean and Mediterranean um, and aren't aware of the, um, you know, how destructive 
they are in those environments. So yeah, I mean, I was even um, in, on social media, um, there was one critic who even equated uh, promoting, you know, lionfish jewelry as being uh, equivalent to promoting elephant ivory. <laughs> so um, yeah, you know, I've had to make the point that um, there's a difference between promoting uh, artisanal products made from parts of an invasive species versus, you know, one that's native to the environment. I, for one, would not advocate either a fishery or um, jewelry from lionfish from the Indo-Pacific because, you know, they aren't a species, while they're not threatened or endangered, they're not a species that are either found in large numbers or are causing any harm to those environments. But, you know, in the case of the Caribbean and the Mediterranean, um, you know, anything that can be done to reduce their numbers is beneficial to maintaining the health of those ecosystems. Yeah, and in the Indo-Pacific, even more importantly, they're part of the ecosystem there. So removing them like, damages the ecosystem because they play a large part there. Yeah, it's funny once you explain to people that they're invasive species and like how many fish they eat per year and how they can destroy coral reefs, people are like, oh, okay, now this actually makes sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just like with anything, it's it's getting educated on the topic. And if you take a, a an issue like harvesting elephants for their ivory, which is something that's is so it's much there's they're endangered, whereas you have such an abundant resource that is damaging the ecosystem within the within the Indo-Pacific, it, it becomes more apparent that there actually has to be something done about it. Yeah, and you know, with 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 both market approaches, both with um, the seafood market and the uh, jewelry market, um, a, a, quite a bit of the uh, retail side involves inclusion of um, information about both the environmental threat and why removal is important. So, in many restaurants that serve lionfish you'll see a, like a little notation on the menu, you know, why are we serving lionfish? And um, the jewelry artists either themselves in their pitches or sometimes even on the labeling of the, um, you know, of the jewelry products include a little, a couple of sentences about why it is that, um, you know, buying this product is helping to save reefs. So um, you're actually, um, you know, creating a little bit of a story around the product and tapping into people's willingness to pay for a product that has an environmental benefit. And hopefully starting a conversation too. Exactly. Around here in the Midwest, uh, I can't tell you how many people don't even know about the lionfish issue still. Like, it was such big news for several years. And then, you know, other things came up and it started to die down and not everyone in the Midwest has been educated on it because you know, we haven't had the opportunity necessarily to even see lionfish. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, in, 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 in your part of the U S a, a way of getting into the conversation is whereas people don't know about lionfish, they do know about Asian carp. Mm -hmm. So if you get them into, 
a conversation about uh, aquatic invasive species and you know the harm that they cause, you can segue. But it's an excellent, excellent point, Anthony. In fact, um, one of the things that um, you know we've done in Belize and elsewhere um, is in restaurants that serve um, lionfish is to provide um, lionfish earrings to the servers because that often helps to start a conversation and also to you know educate the servers about lionfish so that in addition to there being a little blurb on the menu um, they're able to you know to talk to um, diners about uh, you know about why lionfish art or lionfish as a culinary item uh, is helping to deal with the problem. Yeah, we were, this is kind of going in a different direction, but when we, we were having a conversation with our team yesterday and we were talking about how so many people know about plastic issues in the ocean and there's so many organizations that are focusing on removing plastic from the ocean and removing other trash and rubbish but there, it seems like there's not nearly as many people focusing on market-based solutions for invasive species. Right. Um, it's 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 something that it's interesting within the conservation community. Um, there's uh, I think a little bit of um, of controversy about um, market solutions, particularly those that uh, involve um, consumption of species that have not typically been, um, you know, targets for, um, for a fishery uh, or for something like handicrafts. I, I think there's a, 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 um, a growing um, recognition that conservation and conservation biology needs to address sort of the market and the human aspects as well as rather than being strictly limited to sort of the biodiversity and protection of, of animals and the environment. But yes, uh, in fact, I'm involved in a, a survey that's actually going to be launched um, uh, in the next week or so um, that's looking specifically at perceptions uh, of people in um, the uh, marine conservation field about um, market-based approaches to uh, lionfish management, because we want to get sort of a, a sense of um, the extent to which um, it's necessary to change attitudes uh, or whether the attitudes are sort of currently sufficiently uh, in favor of projects and initiatives that make use of, of market approaches. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, like for us, I know we believe because, you know, the lionfish issue started because of humans, they wouldn't have come to the Mediterranean. Uh, they wouldn't have come to other areas like the Caribbean if it wasn't for human intervention. So it, it's definitely our job now to try to stop that problem from becoming worse. Exactly. Uh, I mean, the, 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 um, the, 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 um, the vectors, if you will, in terms of the human intervention are different in both cases. So in the case of the Western Atlantic, it's fairly certain that the, uh, the sort of the, the origin of the invasion is either intentional 
<clears throat> or accidental release of aquarium fish. In the case of the Mediterranean, uh, it's movement through the Suez Canal. But in both cases, uh, you know, it was sort of a human intervention that uh, is behind the invasions. Yeah, and lionfish, like, while it's definitely disastrous what's happened to coral reefs and stuff, it provides an opportunity to, especially in the food market, to try to create an alternative to other species that are going extinct and we should stop fishing. Like when you think about tuna uh, and the possibility of certain tuna species going extinct, if we can change people's habits to think of other species that are more abundant that we can use instead, we can essentially try to save some animals from going extinct too. No, absolutely. So that's an excellent, an excellent point. You know, Anthony, there's a, uh, you know, a number of, um, of chefs as well as um, conservation organizations that have been sort of um, promoting um, the consumption of what are often referred to as trash fish. And that includes both invasives as well as, you know, fish that are lower down on the food chain and are, you know, extremely um, abundant. And lionfish are pretty much always included if you look at any articles about this movement toward um, diversification of the, um, you know, the species of fish that are, are being, um, you know, included in, um, in, in seafood consumption. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I feel like maybe this is an assumption, but I feel like a lot of people understand that overfishing is an issue in the ocean, especially with tuna. And you have something like king crab where it's, it's highly sought after because it tastes delicious, but it's also very expensive because it's difficult to get and people, I don't know if they risk their lives getting it, but I, I know that it is very dangerous. But when you look at something like lionfish, it, although it is dangerous, it is very delicious as well. So I'm, I'm wondering why isn't it more prominent in, in the market for the meat? So it's, I think, um, uh, Josh, that it's, there's two sort of um, related um, reasons for that. Uh, one is, uh, you know, lack of, of knowledge um, and the lack of knowledge then translating into insufficient demand. But at the same time, um, there's also inadequate supply to the extent that demand is there. Um, you know, there isn't yet a well-established sort of um, supply chain. Um, you know, it's interesting when you talk to for example, the, uh, the main person who at uh, Whole Foods who's sort of been behind the introduction there or some of the restaurants that serve lionfish, they're all sort of somewhat secretive about who their suppliers are because of the fact that there isn't this well-established, um, you know, supply chain. Um, it's, you know, it's basically, uh, there's a few, maybe a couple of dozen, uh, to my knowledge, a couple of dozen um, professional spearfishers who essentially are exclusively targeting lionfish and they're supplying to Whole Foods and others. You know, then there's also lionfish that's being caught as bycatch. 
um, in uh, lobster traps, particularly in, in Florida and the Gulf Coast. Um, I'm talking here about the U.S. market. Uh, the, um, you know, the one, of the one of the issues in terms of harvesting is the, like I said, the gear that can be used. Um, there's a, a lot of experimentation being done, and this would be a major boost toward the development of a fishery towards the use of traps. Um, this has been somewhat controversial. Well, let me step back. The reason why traps are being looked at is that, you know, right now um, harvesting is pretty much limited to the depth um, that, you know, recreational or commercial divers can spear at. Uh, you get some lionfish being caught as bycatch in lobster traps, but it's not a significant volume. So the idea of traps is that you would be able to harvest at greater depth, which is where the larger lionfish are found. And the speculation is that, the, um, that their spawning is taking place at the greater depth, although that hasn't been verified. But, um, you know, there's also controversy around traps because of the risk of bycatch, the risk of entanglement, and the risk of ghost fishing if traps break loose from their moorings. So the design that's, there's two approaches that are being taken to developing a lionfish specific trap. One is a high-tech approach and one is a low-tech approach. So the high-tech approach is using shape recognition to essentially create traps that would only open to lionfish. So if you can envision a trap that, you know, has a small opening and um, sensors and when a lionfish approaches and it senses the unique shape, the trap would open up and lionfish would go in. Um, the low-tech approach is capitalizing on the fact that lionfish are attracted more by structure than by bait. They're attracted both by uh, a, a sort of a, uh, so you'll find lionfish congregating around a small coral head or around artificial wrecks or around um, uh, artificial reefs. So capitalizing on that, you have a trap design that basically doesn't use bait, but uses a plastic um, called fish aggregation de device that pops up and attracts the lionfish. Um, and then the trap closes slowly because lionfish don't typically run away or, or, or swim away um, when disturbed. So that the traps closes slowly enough that any other fish that are around can, can swim out. And the ladder design uh, has been developed by uh, uh, one of the uh, Steve Giddings, who's a uh, one of the chief scientists at NOAA. Uh, because we're actually gonna have him on another podcast. Great, so Steve is, uh, yes. Yeah. So Steve Giddings and Holden Harris, who's a PhD candidate at, or, or actually PhD recipient at the University of Florida. Uh, basically part of his dissertation covered the, um, you know, the, the Steve Giddings design trap. Um, and they've recently, received a grant to uh, actually test the trap more widely um, through um, um, lobster fishermen 
in, uh, in Florida. So it'll be tested in an actual, you know, fishing environment with, with several traps on a, um, on a, you know, on a line where um, the uh, fishermen will drop the traps and, uh, you know, soak them and then go out the way they would with lobster traps to see how it works in a commercial environment and also at depth. I think they're planning to te te test at um, somewhere between 150 and 200 feet. Yeah, so we're, we're like I mentioned, we're going to have them on later too to talk more on the trap part. And I think you're totally right, Phil, on the, the part about sourcing lionfish. People keep it very closely guarded. Not going to tell you who our source is either, but um, we had a hard time figuring out, especially during the times with COVID and everything, finding a source of lionfish because anywhere you go, it's either sold out or people are charging exorbitant prices because from an economic standpoint, you know, the supply is low so they can charge whatever they want for the people that actually want to buy it. Uh, I've seen as high as people selling it at $65 a pound. Wow. So I haven't seen that high, but at Publix, I think it was um, something like $19 a pound mm -hmm. at the same time when I think when I was in the store, a grouper and snapper were, you know, each around six or $7 a pound. So you can, you know, definitely um, see that, that, that there's a high premium. Yeah. And really the, the nets and the, the capture nets for lionfish, either high tech or low tech is successful really can change that supply model and get the price of the fish down too. While still adding the, um, the benefit of, you know, capturing invasive species. Also lionfish is just delicious, honestly. Yeah. So that, yeah, so that's definitely, and, and I'm glad to hear that you're going to have uh, Steve on and uh, hopefully in future you'll have some chefs on as well because mm -hmm. lionfish really is, um, I mean, that's one of perhaps a silver lining of this invasion uh, in terms of the, um, um, the ability to look at market approaches, the fact that it is delicious, and also that it's a very versatile, you know, fish, that it, um, it um, does well with freezing, it doesn't lose its texture or taste, which means that it, um, you know, can be um, flash frozen or, um, you know, served in a different number of different ways or distributed in a, in a number of different ways. Yeah, and it, it doesn't really have that much of a fish smell, which is yeah. kind of incredible too. And looking at like comparing it to salmon, it, it smells so much less like fish, which is always nice if you have a ton of it in your freezer too and you're opening yeah. some up. Bill, you're still there? No, I'm still here. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I was uh, I was waiting for you to finish your thought. No, you're good. Um, I guess one thing too that we always like to ask people when they come on the podcast too is, you know, we talk about this lionfish issue, how it's big, the market-based solutions that people are coming to. But like, you know, we're in the Midwest and we found a way to get involved, but there's many people that want to get involved in this issue, but they're not sure even where to start. So what would be your advice, Phil, as someone who, you know, saw this issue when he went to Belize, what would be your advice for people to get involved that maybe not necessarily can go to RCI or can't get to the ocean? How can, how can they be involved? So, I mean, I think then this gets back to um, sort of the citizen science and advocacy side of things. Um, 
So, you know, people who are divers that want to get involved, um, you know, there's um, a number of places in the Caribbean that um, have dive operations where they do uh, remove lionfish as part of the dives. Um, Patty, you know, which is one of the diver certification agencies, probably the best known, does even have a, like a specialized um, certification for, for lionfish that includes um, learning about the invasion and also how to uh, safely spear and handle them. Um, you know, purchasing lionfish uh, in supermarkets where it's available. Uh, again, Midwest, there's probably not too many. If I recall, there's a couple of restaurants in Chicago that have lionfish on the menu. Um, if you look on the website for Reef, the Reef Environmental Education Foundation, they have a list of uh, restaurants across the United States that serve lionfish. Um, you know, lionfish jewelry um, is available on, online from a number of, of sources and soon, you know, even from, um, from Ola Carl will be through your own uh, activities will be um, selling the bracelets. But uh, other types of lionfish jewelry, earrings and necklaces and the like um, are available. You can look on Etsy. Um, I would particularly encourage people to um, purchase from, you know, artists in countries that are in the invaded range. Um, you know, that includes from Florida, but even more so artists from the Caribbean, uh, because with no disrespect whatsoever to artists in the U.S. who are doing lionfish jewelry and are definitely contributing to awareness raising, uh, most of them sort of do this as a sideline, whereas there's a number of the artists in Belize and elsewhere where this is their main source of income. So, you know, you have women in fishing communities who previously had, you know, no source of income, who now have not only um, have a source of income, they've also been empowered and have become, you know, advocates and spokespersons in their communities to raise awareness about the invasion. So, um, you know, I encourage people to um, buy jewelry from uh, artists in the, in the, in the Caribbean. Great. That's, that's great insight on how people can get involved. I know when last February, when I started hearing about this issue, I didn't really know about it. And uh, I knew what lionfish were, I knew what they look like, but I didn't realize how effective they were or how detrimental they are to the ocean. So it's, it's great to hear those other alternative options that you can take. Uh, but Phil, uh, we, as always, with Anthony, it's a it's been a pleasure getting to know you more and getting to know about what you do and your advocacy. So we just wanted to say thank you for joining us today. No, thank you. And I again, I, I really um, admire the work that uh, Ola Carl is doing. Um, you know, to raise awareness, um, not only raise awareness, but also to actually um, translate that awareness about. Um, both, you know, not only lionfish threat, but other threats to coral reefs to translate that into a way of, you know, generating 
uh, resources to help support um, coral reef restoration uh, and, 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 and otherwise. So great job and uh, it's a real pleasure and keep up the good work.